Well, it's hard to believe we're at the end of the series in the book of Galatians. We've been marking up this letter over the course of the entire summer, and we've been listening to the words of the Apostle Paul, who has been a really good pastor, hasn't he? Like, really good pastors do this. They comfort the afflicted, and they afflict the comfortable. And the Apostle Paul has done some of both of those, hasn't he? Again and again, through this series, through these six chapters, he's comforted the afflicted, and he's afflicted the comfortable, and he's going to do it one more time this morning. And we got a lot going on today. We have a number of baptisms right after the sermon, and so we're going to jump right into it. If you want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, we're going to go through the final six verses, seven verses of Galatians today. Galatians 6, starting at verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen. These are the summary words. These are the concluding remarks of the Apostle Paul's letter to his church in ancient Galatia in 47 AD. It would be modern day Turkey. And his basic point is this we're all going to boast in something. This is a rock-solid truth, whether it be 47 A.D. or 2019 A.D. We're all going to boast in something, are we not? We're all going to find something that we say, I take my pride in that. I take my refuge. I take my hope. I even boast in that. Now, culturally speaking, I think... We've been taught, of course, not to say our boasts. And so, for the most part, people may not wear on their t-shirt what they boast in. They may not verbalize it. They may not put it on the back of their car, on their bumper stickers. They might not put it on their Instagram, though they might. But even if we don't wear it, so to speak, we all are going to boast in something. And Paul's exclamation point at the end of his letter is this. We'll boast in doing life our own way, or we will boast in the cross. One or the other. Say that out loud with me, would you please? We will boast in doing life our own way, or we will boast in the cross. It's going to be when you whittle it down, one or the other. Do you boast in what you've done, what you've accomplished, or do you boast in, in Christ and the cross and the fact that he became very low 
for us to come near to God. Again, most of us wouldn't say that I boast in this or that, but I think underneath what we say, there is a reality for many people really across the world. I think it's simply part of our human nature that the natural modus of operation is this. We follow the late great theologian, Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way, right? I did it my way. I will not sing that. Uh, but but that, that's what we want, you know? Like, I, I may not say that, but I'm going to do it my way. I, I may not be the strongest. I, I may not be the smartest. I may not be the most handsome. I, I, I may not have the best status or the best education or the best heritage, but dang it, I got this. I'm doing it my way. You know that? You know that person? We all know that person. That person can live within each and every one of us as we operate naturally in the flesh. That's the natural operation of humanity. And I, too, when I am not tethered to Christ, I do the same thing. It sounds really bold, but in truth, this is just a mask that we will put over ourselves to try to present how special we are and suggest this is really what I put my, my, my pride in, my trust in, I put it in myself. Unfortunately, that begins to enslave us, as we've talked about in this series, because if you trust in yourself and what you bring to the table, then inevitably, well, when it comes to the spiritual life, the next step is this. I need to show you how spiritual I am. I, I, I need to show you how generous I am. I need to talk about it. I, I need to show you how holy I am, how much I pray. I need to show you what a good parent I am and how well-behaved my kids are, at least when you're watching Right, this is the natural thing that happens when we, we trust in self. Really, when you break it down, it's going to be one or other. You see this simple diagram. We will boast or put our trust in what we do or what Christ has done. Now, this may seem redundant because Paul talks about it so much. It may seem redundant because Jesus says so frequently, pick up your cross and follow me. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will actually find it. But why is it that the biblical authors, why is it that Jesus talks about this so much? It's because across every people group and across every generation, we naturally gravitate toward this belief that I am what I do, and what I do will ultimately be good enough before God. Have you ever thought before, I think God will accept me based on the fact that I'm a pretty good person. I've thought that before. That was my natural before I became a Christian. That was probably my natural after I became a Christian for a while. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to who have said, God would accept me because I am a relatively good person. I'm better than most. I take care of my responsibilities. I'm a good wife. I'm a good husband. I take care of my kids. I even adopted a puppy once. Wouldn't God accept me in all of his holiness and perfection? This is where we naturally go. I mean, I went through 12 years of religious education in which I learned to say, Our Father and Hail Mary every single day. And my father even mowed the lawn at the church every week. Why wouldn't God accept me on the basis of what 
I do. Because what we do is never enough to match up to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so what Paul wants us to become very, very clear on is this. We will either boast in what we do or in what Christ has done for us. And when we boast in what Christ has done for us, we are saying, Christ is enough. I trust in him alone. Look at verse 12 and 13 here. It says this. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised that they may boast. They want you to do, 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 do. They want you to do all these religious laws, all these extra religious expectations that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Now, if you weren't with us here, though, this summer, this might seem a little bit random, but uh, what's going on here in the Galatian church is you have a Jewish audience, for the most part, who has come to Christ, but they are telling Gentiles who are coming into the church, the other ethnicities coming to the church in Galatia, that you can't really come to Christ unless you first become a Jew. And in order to become a Jew, you become a Jew outwardly first through this rite of circumcision. It's this religious marker that identified you with the Jewish people. So they're telling them you've got to be circumcised first, and not just be circumcised, but follow all, follow all the other 612 laws of the Old Testament, which they couldn't follow themselves. And why? So that we can boast that we put another notch in our belt. We converted another one to our thinking. We boast in what we do. That's what was going on in the Galatian church. This is natural. Years ago, I was reading a story about the great uh, philosopher C.S. Lewis, and uh, he was invited to this uh, conference of world religions. And all these scholars at this conference of world religions, well, were talking about what makes the different religions unique to one another. And as these philosophers and religious, religious scholar experts were talking about the, this question, uh, they started to move toward the question, what makes Christianity unique amongst the different religions of the world? And at that point, C.S. Lewis walked into the room, and he hears all this debate, and he says, what's all the rumpus about? And they say, we're talking about what is the unique contribution of Christianity? What makes it unique doctrinally compared to other religions? And C.S. Lewis said, oh, well, that's easy. It's grace. The other scholars paused, and they thought through it for a while. And they all had to agree that what makes Christianity unique compared to every other religion of the world, compared to every other idea or philosophy of man as it relates to God is this. In every other religion, in every other philosophy of man, it is men and women reaching their way up to God. Perhaps I can do enough to earn God's favor. But in Christianity, and only in Christianity, is it God reaching his way down to us, and his grace comes to the lowest of places meets us where we need, and draws us to him. Now, if you stand on that, the grace of God, you stand on the cross of Christ, because it is so unique amongst the religions of the world, so unique amongst the philosophies of man, you will certainly stand out from the crowd. Listen, listen, 
If you hang with the crowd, if you hang with the crowd, life may be really easy for you. That sounds pretty good. I, I kind of want a life with the easy button. Anyone else? Okay, sounds pretty good. Life will be pretty easy for you if you hang with the crowd, but you will not experience real lasting change by hanging with the crowd. Isn't that right? But if you stand with Christ, life gets harder. And then you will experience real lasting change that leads to the fruit of the Spirit and a true, abundant, joyous life. That doesn't happen the easy way by, by hanging with the crowd. It happens the hard way by standing with Christ. Now again, the crowd in this original context is Jews and the other, the, the Jews in the Galatian church that say you need to come in here and become Jewish and act the same way all of our ancestors have acted for the last 1,500 years. You come, think, and act like the crowd, and then you can follow Christ. That was the crowd in that context. What's the crowd today? More important question for us. What's the crowd today? What's the crowd in the church world? Ooh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The crowd in the church world is this. It's called cultural Christianity. And it's this little idea that is found in many, many places across America where I will go to church from time to time because it's socially respectable to do so. I will say my prayers before dinner time because I've been taught I must. Occasionally that little sock thing will go through the row at church and I'll tip a 20. But you're going to tell me that Jesus died for my sins? I don't have any sins that need to be died for. I don't have anything much that really needs to be forgiven. You're going to tell me that I have to trust myself and my future to him? both for now and for all of eternity. And it's not based on what I do, it's based on what he did on an old rugged Roman cross. I'm just not buying that. But yeah, coming to the social events and saying a couple little prayers and identifying with the crowd, yeah, I'm down with that. And friends, that's called cultural Christianity, or to be even a little bit more pointed, Country club Christianity. And country club Christianity is like the smoothest path around to eternity separated from God. And a lot of people hang with that crowd. Sometimes hanging with the crowd means sleeping around before marriage because that's just what our culture does and everyone says sex is no big deal. Sometimes it's the crowd who just winks at racism as if racism is no big deal and never speaks up against racism. Sometimes it's the crowd who just pokes fun at that kind of awkward kid in school. You know that awkward kid in school? Were you ever that awkward kid in school? I was that awkward kid in school. Would you stand up for the awkward kid in school in the name of Jesus? Sometimes it's the crowd who says, everyone is smoking pot, what's the big deal? I might as well smoke some pot too. Sometimes it's the crowd of high school students who love Christ as high school students and spent time with them, but then they went to college and they realized that it was a whole lot easier to hang with the crowd than it was to stand for Christ. And so they succumb to the crowd. Why 
why is the crowd so easy? And why is it so hard to stand away from the crowd? I think it's just one word. It really boils down to one word. The only reason that we're tempted not to stand for Christ as followers of Christ is rejection. A fear of rejection. And you really think about it. It's a fear of rejection from mere mortals. It's a fear of rejection from just people who have their own opinions. That's all they are, is just opinions. It's a fear of rejection that prevents us from standing with Christ. In a religious context, of course, this is called persecution. And this was the consequence of those Gentile Galatians who chose not to go with the crowd of Jews that Paul is referring to here. You look at verse 12 again. Those who want to impress people, underline impress people, by the means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for standing on the cross of Christ. That's why, because they don't want to stand on the cross of Christ. They're not willing to stand on the cross of Christ because they're fearful of persecution. Now, I don't want to make light of this because rejection is incredibly painful, isn't it? All of us have been rejected at one time or another, and it's incredibly painful well when you go through it. So in, in no way am I making light of that. It's part of the reason that we so much need a life group. It's part of the reason that we so much need community. It's too difficult to do this thing called Christianity by ourselves. But Jesus told us to expect rejection. Jesus told us to expect that we will actually be persecuted if we stand for Christ. He didn't tell us to be jerks. And some people think that they're being persecuted when they're standing for Christ, when in truth they're just being persecuted because they've been a jerk. Okay? Don't be rude for the cause of Christ. The gospel's offensive enough on its own. But if you choose to really stand on the gospel of Christ in love, there will be times that other people say, I can't go with you there, and in fact, I'm going to judge you there. I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to reject you for your faith. And that's painful. But it gets easier with time. It gets easier with practice. And Jesus said to expect it. And I tell you what, I, I don't talk about my background a whole lot, but I've experienced a lot of rejection. I've experienced more than my fair share of rejection specifically for faith. Sometimes from family members who I love very, very deeply. But I will not avoid it because Jesus chose not to avoid me. Sometimes by friends who are really, really challenging Democrats, and I will stand for Christ over politics, and they might reject me. And sometimes from friends who are really, really strong Republicans, and I will stand for Christ over politics, and I've been rejected by them too, but I will not avoid it because Jesus did not avoid me. You, you see, he stretched his arms out for you and me. He stretched his legs out for you and me. He was pierced in the side for you and me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for in the same way they reviled me, so also they will revile you. But if you take your stand in Christ, I promise you, you will grow through it because you will experience in a new and a profound way that Jesus is standing with you. Some of my strongest growth, some of your strongest growth as a Christian, I know, has come when you have chosen to stand with Christ as opposed to hanging with the crowd of ordinary, everyday groupthink. Don't go there. Stand with Christ. Here's how Paul wraps it all up. He says, may I never boast. May I never boast in anything except for this. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the, Lord, to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. Neither the outside, neither heritage, neither ultimately your race or your gender, neither where you're from, your generation, none of those things matter a whole lot to God except for this. Are you a new creation in Christ? Have you been spiritually renewed by him? Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. The truth is that if you've been spiritually renewed by Jesus, you belong to him such that you are now the family of God. You are now the Israel of God, such that if anyone puts you to shame on any day, you can still lay your head down on your pillow in peace, knowing that Christ is for you. And if Christ is for you, who can be against you? And that leads us to the sense of freedom that I can boast in him alone. I can live 100% for him alone because I am a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, an heir of the throne of Jesus Christ himself, a new creation, the Israel of God. Wow. Mm. Are you willing to stand with Christ? I love the way Paul concludes his really challenging word to the Galatian churches. If you study your Bible, you know that this is the most challenging letter to any of the churches. And yet, he ends his letter the exact same way that he began his letter. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. That's just incredible to me that he says that, but because these were a people in the Galatian church who reviled Paul on many, many occasions. They undermined his leadership. They questioned his authority. They tried to steal the church from him, even though he founded the church years before. Not only did they assault his character, not only did they persecute him, but they also put all these additives on top of the gospel such that they distorted the gospel as well. There are people in the Galatian church who did that. And yet Paul concludes his letter with this hopeful word, my brothers and sisters. Huh? Paul understood what my grandpa used to say to me. My grandpa Tamaro. God bless him. He died about 10 years ago. And he was a World War II vet, and he survived the Great Dep Depression. And he was one of the strongest, most gentle men I've ever known. He was a hero of mine. And he was fond of saying, Adrian, remember this in your speaking. Remember this. Honey attracts way more flies than vinegar. Honey attracts way more flies than vinegar. 
And so even when Paul has to use some vinegar in his message, which he does on a number of occasions in Galatians, he says, who bewitched you all? What's wrong with you all? Why would you go like this? Why are you trying to add to the work of the Spirit with the work of your flesh? Who bewitched you? I mean, he adds some vinegar. But afterwards, he comes up to him and he gives him a hug and he gives him some sugar. He gives him some honey. And he says, my brothers and my sisters, I forgive you. I think the best of you. I love you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. I think he understands that in that Galatian church, there are some who are genuinely followers of Christ, and he's praying for them. And there's others who are not yet followers of Christ, and he's praying for them too, that one day they would be brothers and sisters with him as well. That they would be persuaded by the truth and the hope and the love of the gospel as well. And that they would have the courage to boast in Jesus Christ alone without any additives to stand for Christ rather than hang with the world. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, my brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your grace. I know as I look at my life, I, I could not stand on my own good deeds. I could not stand on my family heritage. I couldn't stand on my intelligence or my strength. I could only stand in the power and the beauty and the sacrifice and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I, I ask that you would help me and you would, ask, you would help all of my brothers and sisters around this room that we would stand on the grace of Christ, that we would place our boast in you alone and not in anyone or anything else, not in what we do. Our boast would be on you. And we would remember your grace comes to us when we are at the lowest place, and we would stand for you no matter where you call us to this week. That's going to be hard for some of us in this room, as I know there are people in this room who are facing rejection even right now. I know there are people in this room who work in environments where their faith is not welcome. I know there are people in this room who have family and friend relationships where on a consistent basis it doesn't feel like their faith in Christ is welcome. And I ask God in the name of Jesus that you would grant them courage to stand in you. You are in no way ashamed of them. You stand with them. Would you give us grace and courage and strength that we would stand with you? We'll be careful to give you all the glory to Jesus Christ, the only glorious one, the only wise God. Be glory now and forever. God's people say.